0: This is Positive Parenting, parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brat. Hey there,
1: welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, the founder of MrDad.com. Sleeping with a baby has been the norm throughout most of history and across cultures, but today, Co-sleeping, as it's called, is fraught with questions, fear, and guilt. The complexity and diversity of modern lifestyles can make any sleeping arrangement dangerous, regardless of what it is. Navigating conflicting advice leaves parents overwhelmed and exhausted, and those who cherish the closeness of co-sleeping may find themselves doubting their parental instincts. In this part of today's show, we're going to be speaking with an expert in co sleeping, somebody who's been researching the topic for more than 30 years, and he's going to tell us how we can identify and avoid the hazards of any sleeping arrangement and explore how co sleeping can meet your family's unique needs as long as you do it safely. And along the way, we're going to be breaking down the biological, political, and social aspects of sleep safety. And we're going to talk about some of the common misconceptions and the hard science that may refute them. I'm Armand Braun. We'll start talking about co-sleeping and bed sharing, what you need to know and how to do it right if you choose to do it, when Positive Parenting continues right
2: after this.
0: 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke.
3: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is James McKenna, who's the author of Safe Infant Sleep: Expert Answers to Your Co-Sleeping Questions. Jim, thanks for joining us.
4: Oh, it's my pleasure to be here,
3: Armin. Tell us a little bit about the the history of co-sleeping. I think that's something that's it's still, oddly enough, is a controversial topic.
4: Oh yeah. Well, you know, it's the human universal. It is the normative default sleeping arrangement for human babies and a variety of other mammals, too. It's not just uh, primate humans. But this is an example of where early in the last century culture went astray. And without any kind of empirical evidence whatsoever, any kind of science, um, medical professionals were starting to give advice on where babies should sleep. And the problem was that where babies should sleep had nothing to do with babies and everything to do with very recent cultural ideologies and ways of thinking of who we want babies to become, you know, which is to say in our culture, independent and autonomous as early in life as possible. Right. As opposed to starting with the question is, which would be who is the baby biologically speaking and who is – when you answer that question, you come up with a very different – set of recommendations as to how babies should be cared for. All human babies are born neurologically the least mature primate and mammal of all, with only 25% of their brain volume at birth. This immediately puts into place, evolutionarily, the role that mother's body acts as a habitat to the human infant. That is, it's not just a nice social idea that mother's there, even though we kind of you know, uh, ruled out her necessity by virtue of replacing breast milk and breastfeeding um, with uh, cow's milk, milk of another species, and formula. But the reality is, insofar as biology changes much slower than does cultural values and ideologies, the mother's body acts as a way of regulating practically every neurological, biological system in the baby's body, including thermoregulation, respiration, immunity, digestion.
3: Right. Uh, Jim, let me everything. let me just uh stop you for just a second because I'm curious about something. If you're in a situation where the mom is not able to breastfeed, is it specifically the mother's proximity or is it any warm body?
4: Good question, Armin. It's actually every warm body. And indeed, it, it's something that's forgotten. Now, obviously, mothers breastfeed, and the normative beginning point for understanding where how human infants would be cared for, um, mm-hmm. as they carry the biological expectation that they will be breastfed, but without knowing it, of course, and they will engage in this sensory contact, that is the delivery system of this incredible perfect food called breast milk. But you're right. Fathers' bodies can provide that same arrangement, that same sensory engagement of heat and smells and chest movement and air hitting the baby's face. And all of that, insofar as a baby's body is concerned, that warm other, the alo mother, as we call it in anthropology, individuals other than the mother that care for babies and have always cared for them, too, is, is really important to remember. So that's a that's a very excellent question.
3: No, I'm I'm curious about something else. I mean I, I'm sure you you've been in this business for a long time. I remember actually citing some of your work in one of my earlier books. Uh and but, but the, the general consensus these days among at least the Academy of Pediatrics is that people should not mm-hmm. co sleep. And part of their fear is about rolling over and, and I've always thought sure. about, you know, how how often do yeah. people fall out of bed yeah. when they're yeah. sleeping? not often.
4: For a committed breastfeeding mother, it's incredibly rare. Babies, unlike what I think the AAP has kind of presented, the baby is not a little um, neutral protoplasmic blob lying there waiting to be rolled over. Even a newborn has very dramatic engagements to fight suffocation and or the obstruction of its nose or mouth. And there's proof of that. There's a horrible study that was done in the 1970s where they put cellophane over a newborn's face, believe it or not, and wow. cotton stuffed up their noses. And it took two of the individuals to kind of hold down the baby and just a huge variety of head batting behavior, arching the back to get away from the obstruction.
3: I can't believe there was a study like that done.
4: So the AAP, you know, starts by defining any kind of same surface co-sleeping, basically as a pathology. And this has been the challenge for my career, is questioning and challenging the notion that somehow culturally we've reversed what is a pathology, a behavioral pathology, which is baby sleeping alone, disconnected or disarticulated from their mother's bodies. Um, and that is the pathology, with this inference being that no matter what a woman, mother does or father for that matter she cannot maintain uh, a um, ability to monitor her baby while sleeping next to it and, and this is crazy um, it's not true at all Now when people are desensitized by drugs and alcohol of course or if they just you know jump in the bed and oh hi baby and turn around and go to sleep no it does require a decision an mm-hmm. active decision baby in bed. Baby is my responsibility, too.
3: Let's take a, a little so, bit of a step back, Jim, and talk a little bit more about the some of the benefits that accrue to babies who are co-slept okay. with.
4: Well, we know now both short- and long-term benefits. One, in terms of general health, if the baby is getting breast milk, when mother is next to the baby in bed, the number of breastfeeding sessions go up from like two- to five and six. The baby gets maximum breast milk, which means all the perfect ingredients necessary for the neurological structures to proliferate and attach in the right way are in place. The baby's immune system, which is highly undeveloped at birth, is of course made active and effective by virtue of the mother having homegrown specifically the exact um, defenses against the uh, diseases or in microbes in the baby's habitat itself—that is, where mother is going to live. So, the baby's body is regular. Even my arguments have been through the years that it isn't only okay to sleep with your baby, but it is proactive and protective, and makes it much less likely that the deficits involved in sudden infant death syndrome conspire and can more easily conspire to create the conditions for the sudden infant death syndrome. What has been difficult in our culture and why AAP who are not trained in evolutionary sciences or cross-cultural data or even psychobiological studies, separation studies of primates from their caregivers' bodies, is they are responding to the conditions within which um, bed sharing in this case can occur. Now, it was a real radical change for them. In 19, 2005, to actually recommend that babies sleep in the same room, room sharing.
3: But yeah, that was, that was a big that it's change. Yeah. The
4: walls of the room that's protecting the baby here. What's protecting the baby is engagements with the parents. And when babies hear their parents and get touched by their parents, well, they just navigate closer and closer. Uh, proximity to them, and especially if they're breastfeeding, they work their ways into their parents' bed because it makes them happy. Mom can sleep better. Baby can sleep better. And that's the way the biology is intended to work. So it isn't the case that we can be blasé, and it isn't enough to say um, that co-sleeping is, a, is an inherently evolved adaptive system. Um, while it is that, it can certainly play out in conditions and circumstances that are unsafe beds didn't evolve Um, spaces between headboards and mattresses didn't evolve Uh, smoking which diminishes baby's arousal capacities to respond to apneas and or obstructions um, that didn't evolve so yes there are conditions and circumstances where it would be much wiser to have the baby sleeping alongside the bed on a different surface no questions asked of course but to move from huge epidemiological studies that in most cases don't know the cofactors that really contributed to killing the baby, to move from those studies to simply say no humans on the planet can sleep on the same surface, their baby, without um, giving a high um, statistical probability uh, an unacceptably uh, dangerous environment to that baby and that's that's absolutely
3: not true all right talking with james mckenna who's the author of safe infant sleep expert answers to your co-sleeping questions and we're going to take a quick break right now when we come back we will keep talking to to jim mckenna about co-sleeping and the benefits and the you know what we can do to improve it and what we need to know about it i'm Armin and you're listening to positive parenting
2: you took the first step and quit smoking
3: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with James McKenna, the author of Safe Infant Sleep: Expert Answers to Your Co-Sleeping Questions. Want to have you go back a little bit and and give us a sense of whether there's been any research that looks at people who, I, I guess, comparing adults who were whether they were as infants they co-slept versus oh. those who didn't. If there's any any difference in in the way that we turn out or if this is just something that affects childhood?
4: (laughs) Well, it certainly does affect the developmental and the mental health of babies. I mean, there's a reason, for example, why babies cry when they're left alone and they want to retrieve their caregiver. Overall, obviously, on a minute-to-minute, daily basis, there must be something good going on. Now, while the studies, on terms of long-term, Uh, effects of co-sleeping haven't been controlled because it's never been thought to be particularly important except What we've learned in the last 10-15 years is that that independence and autonomy that seemed to not necessarily be associated with separate sleep for babies is interestingly but not surprisingly um, Associated with children that co-slept gender identities have been known to be stronger um, male and female, more uh, comfortable with affection. Um, as adults, even one big study showed that the big difference was that children, uh, adults, young adults that co-slept with their parents were, had more optimistic attitudes about the future. Um, toddlers actually have less temper tantrums. It was a big study done at the University of Bristol, And then most recently we have the best study done on, quote, what is an independent baby uh, or toddler. And, you know, obviously they're not, and they won't ever be independent, but their behavior is slightly different insofar as Keller um, discovered when she defined uh, um, um, independence as being able to be alone in a room by themselves, being able to meet friends with comfort, and to be able to initiate problem solving when given a task. And in all those ways, being alone in a room, um, uh, being able to be easy, meeting friends and strangers, um, and being given tasks and problem-solving, it was the children that were co-sleeping and not the children that were forced solitary sleeping. But let me add a caveat to this. It's nice to be able to say that there really can be behavioral phenotypes or changes in behavior that might um, be more optimal as is associated with co-sleeping, but it's important to keep in mind that sleep location can't be the determining factor in in mental health or per- personality characteristics. Because keep in mind that uh, while what's going on during the day uh, can be strengthened by what is going on at night, if the relationships are healthy and affirming, and so on and so forth, you- still so, children's uh, personalities. Psychological profiles develop with us on a seven 24 hour basis. So that if it's terrific, what is going on relationally between the parent during the day, the baby only gets more or child only gets more of what is already good. If, in contrast, it isn't so good, parents don't really want to go sleep with their baby, but they're being forced to because the, the, the baby won't sleep anywhere else, and it ends up not being so positive. Mm -hmm. Well, then obviously the baby's not getting an optimal relational experience. Right. So I'm just trying to point out that, yes, we can look at cross sectional studies, not controlled, but, you know, behavioral um, questions, qualitative data that looks really darn good for co sleeping. And this is all recall, of course, when you're going beyond, you know, uh, two or three. Yeah.
3: I think uh, a lot of children. A lot of people would push back on this a little bit when, and, and say, but if you co-sleep with your baby in the beginning, it's going to be really hard to get the kid out of the bed at some point. And it, it becomes impractical for a lot of adults to want to have a baby. I mean, a baby, okay, is one thing, but after six yeah. months or after a little bit more than that, you want to have your own privacy back, and and we do need yeah. to, to raise kids to be independent, right? So how do you how right. do you respond to that? Particular line of thinking.
4: I don't even think it's necessarily anything different than what you might be thinking, but other kinds of caregiving and familial practices. In other words, what's really critical is that it's a, a behavior that's healthy and um, desired, and a positive is, is uh, can be ex- explained by a positive attitude of the parents. And you're you're totally right. So when the situation actually becomes um, not so good, and partners have to, you know, make these kinds of decisions together and be sensitive to each other's uh, personhoods. I still think it's important to begin with understanding in whose best interest this decision is being made, particularly when it's a young infant, let's say up to six months or so. Um, certainly, parents can try to sleep train and do all of this, but just make sure. You know that this has nothing to do with what's good for babies, and probably while my guess is not particularly permanently harmful, it certainly is not needed. It isn't pleasant for babies. Babies are designed to be close to their mothers and their dads, not necessarily snuggled up in the bed, but certainly within um, uh, proximity that sensory signals and cues can be exchanged so urban life does present its problems but that isn't going to change the biology of the infant and yet if parents really need them to make those decisions they need to make those decisions and do what's in their overall you know best interest in the sense of the convergence of all these mm-hmm. psychological constellations that are at play here
3: yeah let's talk a little bit about some of the mechanics how do you set up an environment or your bed, I guess, that's a pretty small environment, so that you can do this keeping in mind safety, which is obviously going to be the, the number one priority.
4: Yep. So, um, first of all, you would want to have a stiff mattress. And of course, I know this is a relative uh, question what's stiff, uh, stiff or hard. You, you want to look at what I would do is I'd look at putting the baby on the bed and see if the baby is sinking in at all. And if it is, then it's probably not a good mattress. You want something hard and firm, relatively. I mean, it doesn't have to be like a board. Babies don't weigh that much. But um, you want to make sure that it's stiff. You want to keep big blankets away from the baby. Duvets can flop over in the baby's head. Keep babies away from and um, not certainly sleeping on pillows. You want to make sure that, um, that there's no um, spaces between the headboard and the mattress or a space between the lamp table on the side of the bed and in the bed. Now, it's true that the breastfed baby doesn't move very much at all because it's right underneath the mom's um, tricep, chest level, um, looking at mother all night, as our own studies have showed pretty much, and just is going to and from the breast. That's it. But bottle-fed babies, it's one reason why it's not as safe. They do move around in their bed, and they are more likely, if there were spaces, to fall, get wedged, and and strangle. Um, keeping other children out of the bed is very important. I think, at very least, if they do join, then they shouldn't ever be sleeping next to the baby, and there should be an adult, you know, between a toddler. But I would just say, because you can't monitor where toddlers might go or children while you're sleeping, because you're not attending to their needs at the moment. You're attending to the baby's needs. Um, I would I would just not have children in the bed, other children in the bed. Um, I did mention, of course, not being desensitized by drug and alcohol, which are the biggie's, and that's the leading, one of the leading uh, causes of babies actually dying in bed, as right. well as putting the baby always, regardless of feeding uh, practice, putting babies always on their back.
3: Mm-hmm. And not smoking, also.
4: And sharing right. environments from simply prone sleep, but a double standard is applied as to, as to the cause and the solution, whereas if the baby's in an environment deemed unsafe, suddenly it isn't the prone position that's uh, led to the death of the baby, but it's being in the bed that's led to the baby, and the solution is eradication rather than teaching safe bed sharing practices
3: And non-smoking too, right?
4: Oh, yes. Shouldn't, should, that, certainly. Yeah. Yes. Um, maternal smoking diminishes the arousal capacities and the uh, inefficient arousal capacities to terminate apneas has been a leading explicant of what could be involved in something that we call sudden infant death
3: syndrome. James McKenna is the author of Safe Infant Sleep, Expert Answers to Your Co-Sleeping Question, and he's also the director of the Mother-Baby Behavioral Sleep Laboratory at the University of Notre Dame. It was a pleasure to have you on, Jim. Thanks so much for joining us.
4: For having me, Armin, it was my pleasure. Opiates has taken everything and everyone I've ever loved away from me. Everything. I blew my ankle out and I got prescribed pain pills by my doctor. If making my detox public is going to help somebody, I'm all for it. I just wish
1: I would have had a warning.
0: Opioid dependence can happen after just five days. Know the truth. Spread the truth. A message from Truth, the Ad Council, and OWN DCP.
1: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment. Dear Mr. Dad, my 14-year-old son, who's a high school freshman, is completely stressed out. In the past, he always looked forward to school, but for the past few weeks, he's been saying that he doesn't want to go. What can I do to help him? For some kids, going to school is no big deal. But for plenty of others, like your son, it's incredibly stressful. There can be all sorts of reasons. Is he, or anyone he knows, being bullied? Or is he worried that it could happen to him? Or if it already did, that it'll happen again? Is he nervous about those annoying standardized tests or having trouble keeping up with the high school homework load? Does he have friends? Is he spending too much time on social media? Is he getting worried about college? Yes, it's early for him, but some kids, especially perfectionists, start getting prepared years in advance. Here are some things you can do to reduce school-related stress. Talk with him. Actually, this is mostly about you listening, being there, and being empathetic. Gently encourage him to explain what he's feeling. That's often enough to alleviate some of the stress. Ask whether there's anything you can do to help, but do not try to solve his problems for him. Wait for him to ask. The exceptions are bullying and test anxiety. It's a good idea to give the teacher a heads up and ask him or her to keep an eye on on your son. Eliminate performance anxiety. As parents, we want our children to excel, and we tell them things like, I expect you to get all A's this year. This puts a lot of pressure on kids, particularly if they're taking a subject they've never had or have had trouble with in the past. Good grades are nice, but is that A really worth putting him under even more stress than he already feels, or the hate he'll develop for a subject he might have actually enjoyed if you hadn't pushed so hard? Just ask him to do his best, and offer to get him some tutoring, or to help, if you're able, if he needs it. Limit screen time. Too many parents pay too little attention to the children's non-academic screen usage. Kids sleep with their phone, spend breakfast catching up on all the social media updates they slept through, if they slept at all, spend every second of every passing period texting, and so on. Researcher Stephanie Donaldson-Pressman and her colleagues did a huge national study and found that 45 minutes per day is the most a child can spend before there are any apparent effects on their educational, emotional, and social development. 90 minutes of daily screen time can lower a child's GPA by one grade level. Again, we're talking about non-academic related screen time here. Limit extracurricular activities. In high school, your son's primary job is to be a good student, which includes keeping up with homework and other assignments. Anything else, whether it's sports or music lessons, could add more stress to the mix, unless, of course, it's a stress reliever. Give him plenty of breathing room. Keep the extracurriculars to a minimum, until you and your son are confident that he's coping well with school. If so, add activities he's interested in one at a time. Create a learning environment. Kids who have firm rules about media, consistent homework routines, chores, a regular bedtime, and who use a calendar, whether it's digital or paper, to manage their schedule are less anxious and do better in school, says Donaldson Pressman. Don't be shy about calling in a professional. If your son needs tutoring, help him find a tutor. If he's being bullied, notify the school administration. If he has fewer friends than usual or none at all, has lost interest in activities he used to love, is behaving strangely or is spending an excessive amount of time with his face in a device, consider meeting with a child psychologist. There's no shame in asking for help. If you've got a question or a comment or a suggestion here for us at Positive Parenting, we would love to hear from you. You can drop us a line through our email at MrDad.com. And while you're there, you can check out our archives going back 10 years at least. Read up on all sorts of additional uh, Ask Mr. Dad columns and find out about the column that I'm doing on men's health and all sorts of other wonderful things that are all free. It's all at MrDad.com. We'll be back next week with another show for you, but don't go yet because there's a lot more of this show coming right up.
0: More with Mr. Dad. Armin brought after this, from the MrDad.com radio network.
1: Hi, we're the Goo Goo Dolls. We're fortunate that we can give our daughters everything they need to grow and learn. But not every child can focus on classes and play dates.
4: Nearly 13 million kids in the U.S. face hunger. That's one in six. School lunch might be their only meal each day and it's heartbreaking to imagine any child going to bed hungry. We're dreaming of a perfect day when kids can smile, play, and just be kids without worrying about where their next meal will come from. Feeding America is working to make that perfect day a reality.
1: Each year, the Feeding America network of food banks rescues billions of pounds of good food that would have gone to waste. That food is given to families and children in need. Being a kid should be about doing things that make an ordinary day extraordinary.
0: Learning to play an instrument, building a sandcastle, hosting tea parties. Hunger should never be an obstacle to growing up. You can help end childhood hunger in your community by visiting feedingamerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network.
1: Hey there, welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brot, the founder of MrDad.com. Glad you stayed with us. We've got a great segment up ahead for you. New parents are almost, by definition, anxious people. And the seeds of that anxiety come in small bundles of unsolicited comments and advice whispered by coworkers, relatives, and a robust media that pumps out unreal images of parenthood. They're morsels of must-haves that no mom or dad can forget. Overbearing, if I were you, tidbits from friends. And finally, the hushed and mysterious, everyone who has ever had a baby, challenges that come from the media that brims with pictures of celebrities strolling their newborns through Central Park. Now, don't get me wrong. Not all of this unasked for advice that's coming your way is without merit. You should absolutely buy a safe and convenient car seat and have it installed properly. And yes, you should be thinking about saving money for your child's education. But there are a lot of things that you don't need to do. And in this part of today's show, we're going to be speaking with a pediatrician who's got more than three decades of experience, who's going to help guide us through the earliest moments of your child's life and help us to parent with common sense and confidence. His advice is clear and sensible, and best of all, at least from my perspective, brings in the latest scientific data and research. And it all starts when Positive Parenting continues right after this. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Broad, And my guest for this part of today's show is Robert Hamilton, who's the author of Seven Secrets of the Newborn, Secrets and Happy Surprises of the First Year. Bob, thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you, Armin. It is a great pleasure to be here.
1: So as a pediatrician, I mean, that's who you are. I'm not a pediatrician. Yes. You are the pediatrician. What have you seen change over the years that you've been in practice? What's What's new these days?
2: It's a great question. You know, I, I've been in practice for 35 years. I, I practice here in Santa Monica, California, which is a little bit south of where you're at, I know. And um, listen, over 30, 35 years is, is an entire generation. It's an entire, uh, you know, uh, from one generation to the next. And it turns out I'm actually getting some of those second-generation uh, babies being born into my practice, uh, children who I took care of from the very moment they were born, now are having their own children, which, of mm. course, is an incredible delight. But, yes, I mean, what has happened, um, I think that, you know, I, I I think about this a lot. I mean, certainly we have more vaccines. We have more um, The, you know, uh, thing, you know, uh, modalities, therapeutic modalities that we can utilize for children. But I think if I really had to say, okay, what is the big thing? I'll tell you what the big thing is. The big thing that has changed in the last 35 years, and this is for children and for parents, is media, social media, Mm -hmm. and and really um, our telephones. You know, the computer that we walk around in our pocket with all the time, that has radically changed our world. In what way? Well, I mean, you know, first of all, uh, everyone's connected. I mean, you can uh, basically, uh, you know, everything that you say can be Googled, and every diagnosis that you come up with and comment to your family, they can kind of go home and read about it that day on WebMD or some other uh, outlet. And so that has, you know, that has been, I think, a good thing for parents. The other thing, too, though, is that, you know, kids are – I'm talking about not babies now, okay? We're talking, I mean, I wrote my book. My book is essentially a, a, a compendium of things that happened in year number one. But essentially, I'm talking about beyond that time. I'm running into kids who are, who are spending you know, too much time looking at a screen rather than uh, you know, engaging the world.
1: Yeah, I I think that's that's probably a very valid thing. I, I think you know, it's obviously 35 years is is too short a window to see something in in terms of uh, evolution, but I'm kind of wondering did you ever think about how whether there will be in in say your your great-grandchildren's lifetime something that will change in humans that well, will make us different?
2: Well, you know, uh I I will tell you, Armin, that I'm not sure evolution or devolution.
3: Okay, (laughs) we'll start
2: with that. But, I I mean, I I look at this and I kind of go, how is it? I mean, more and more, you know, interpersonal interactions are profound. They're very important. And I'm seeing some kids who who, who are lacking in that. And, um, you know, talking to a person... Back and forth, you know. I I have a rule in my office, especially with my teenagers. You know, if they walk in and look, every teenager I have has got a something. They have a a smartphone, uh, and they're they're usually with their head down. And they, you know, I kind of walk in the room, and they kind of grunt. I go, "Hello, are you there?" And so I have a rule. You you come into my office, and I look at the mother, and I say, "No cell phones. Turn it off." You know, and so they. Grudgingly they kinda of groan, they go, ah, you know, I go, Yep, gotta turn it off. You actually have to look at me eyeball to eyeball for five minutes. Okay. Hmm. <laughs> and so they we we do that and that's what I do. So I don't know. I mean I, I'm concerned about the social ability, uh, Armin, of our of our kids who are growing up. That's yeah. one of the big issues. And so if we don't, if we can't listen, this whole world is about communication. I mean, if we're not communicating with each other in a, in a very real way, then that that kind of is worrisome.
1: You know, I was wondering, from the perspective of of younger kids, and we're talking about the first year, whether technology is is getting in the way too. And I, I've looked at some studies that uh, pediatricians have been mm-hmm. anecdotally, anyway. There has not been a lot of a lot of research on it, but anecdotally, saying that. A lot of very six-month-olds or nine-month-olds who should have pretty good hand-eye coordination by that time right. aren't able to put a one block on top of another one because they're so used to putting one block on top of another one on a, a device of some kind where all you have to do is drag it across a screen. Right. And balancing something is is much different when you're actually trying to balance an actual object instead of an image of one. And have you seen any of that in, in your practice about the you know I I haven't I muscle. mean I,
2: I mean I, I don't doubt that maybe that is happening but I don't actually see it per se uh, also you know children but the American Academy of Pediatrics, and I am I'm all about this and I tell my I'm kind of a little bit of a, uh, a little I get up on my you know my soapbox and. and drive my patient uh, and my parents crazy but you know I tell them look no screens for two years so anyway and and I will tell you that the majority of my parents I have wonderful people in my practice I want you to know that if anybody's out there listening to me right <laughs> now people you're great people but anyway they're great people and they and they hear me and they and they get it and they they try to keep their kids away from screens and definitely if you're talking about like Tetris or something like that where they're doing you know this kind of you know, that, that kind of game. My kids are not playing video games yet. Um, later on, they get into that. I mean, the teenage boys and you know your older kids get into these video games big time. Uh, that is a different dynamic. But not not with the with the younger kids. I mean, yes, if you know, you're totally right. The, the skill set that is required to actually put a block on another block. Totally different than the the skill set to move a mouse, right? And put that. I mean, yes, you're developing some fine mill fine, you know, eye eye hand coordination in a different way, but um, really, you know, the real world is where we want our children to live in, and uh, that's what I encourage for my parents.
1: Well, that gets us into a couple of the the, six, the seven secrets, kind of combining a few of them into the basic idea that. For the first little while, your baby doesn't need a bunch of fancy stuff, toys or games or things like that. Your baby just needs you.
2: You're completely right, and, uh, and, I, I, and, and that's exactly what I write. I mean, here the first month or two in, in particular, uh, I tell people the first month especially that you should have what I call a skin-to-skin uh, marathon extravaganza. In other words, you that child of your should be attached to your body for a month uh interestingly enough anecdotally I just uh got out of the room with a new family the the baby but one month old baby uh boy, beautiful boy born in Korea. and i and I looked at the mother and uh I said, "Why do you why did you have your baby in Korea?" And she said, "Well, because I wanted to take advantage of the one month rule. I go, "What is that?" and they go, "Well, the first month." the the community of of women in in the in the Korean community to kind of surround that new mom and that new baby and basically allow that mother the freedom to uh, to not have to do anything like go grocery shopping or do hmm. dishes or any all the domestic stuff that you know moms and people do after a baby's born they basically are dedicated for that first month to nothing but baby. And it's such a rich and wonderful thing. By the way, that is not a, a a an idea, you know, related only to Korea. They have that do that. They do that all over the world in Latin countries. They yeah. call it the quarantina. In the old country, in Europe, they did that too. But there is very much a part of the culture over there. So, and that is the way it should be. It should be mommy and baby and daddy, and it should be that wonderful time for rich bonding.
1: You know, along those lines, I, I was just thinking as I was reading the book and the secret number—that was secret number three—about not needing it and not needing you. But secret number two is the baby leads the way. No schedules, no programs, just baby. And there, there was a couple down the street from from us when my first baby was born that were yeah. the the woman was very much a spreadsheet kind of a person, and Ooh. she was going to feed those kids at at you know six, eight, ten, twelve, you know. It was going to be on her schedule, and she did that and and I in some way admired that. I thought it was it just absolutely was not going to work for me. It just seemed much easier to to do what you suggest, which is just turn your life over to the baby for the first month or so yeah but what do you what do you tell parents about the well, I mean, the benefits I, I of, that, I'd of, say, doing
2: first of first of all good luck with that uh, yeah. you 're going to be you 're kind of setting yourself up for frustration uh, and really the reality is. That having children, Armin, and my, my wife and I, I want you the world to know we have six beautiful children. They're now grown, but they're, it's wonderful. And, and you know what? It's quite organic. I mean, this is not a, 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 a college course. We're, we're talking about life, and life is wonderful. Having children is wonderful. It is, they're meant. Children are meant, and I'm quoting the Bible now, not my book. Children are meant to be a blessing. They're, they're called, they're a blessing from the Lord. And so you have children, and if you're having to, like, this rigidity of the schedule, I mean, would you want to be that kid in that family? Would you want to be that? You have to have that for no, your mother? No. no way. I mean, come on. And, and when you, you have to realize that there are people who kind of feel like they have to work hard. No. What you have to do is you have to stand back and give your child your attention You have to respond to them when they coo to you, coo back to them. When they smile at you, you smile back. You tell them you're a great kid. We love you. We are so happy that we have you. And that's kind of what they need. They don't, and they need Mm -hmm. food, and they need to be changed, (laughs) and they need to be put to bed. They need to, you know, when it rains, you got to take them out of the rain, you know. And yes, you need the the uh, you need to take care of your children. I don't think that's think that's kind of uh, pretty intuitive for most people. But the reality is, in terms of Scheduling and everything early on. Listen, they just came out of the womb. Let them kind of start to figure it out. And the amazing thing, Armin, is that they actually fall relatively quickly into a reasonable uh, rhythm of life. They do. And uh, but it can happen. It happens naturally. Not uh, you don't have to push it uh, necessarily. Right.
1: Talking with Robert Hamilton, the author of Seven Secrets of the Newborn. And we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Bob.
0: Long ago, you wouldn't think of galloping on a horse while doing calligraphy. And you wouldn't have attempted to ride your bike while typing a letter. Yet you think you can safely operate a multi-ton vehicle while texting? Behind the wheel is no place to multitask. If you want to BRB, drive now and text later. Lives depend on it. Visit stoptechstoprex.org, a message brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Project Yellow Light, Noise, and the Ad Council.
1: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Broad. If you're just joining us, I'm talking with Robert Hamilton, who's the author of Seven Secrets of the Newborn, Secrets and Happy Surprises of the First Year, and wanted to to get over a little bit. You were talking about how you you that things will kind of t- take place, and the baby will get into a rhythm, and that all you have to do is is follow the baby's lead in a way. But I'm wondering about secret number four. Which is that solid and healthy families don't happen by chance; they're created with deliberation. How? So, so talk us through the deliberative process there.
2: Sure. Um, I think that you know in, the word intentional is such a, a powerful word, and you know, you, you yes, there's a certain amount of uh, freeformness that I that we all um, that I, I I like and I like to see, but. Really, when you're thinking about the bigger picture, of, okay, you, you are now caring for a human being. And this is a incredible, incredible responsibility. And this is a good thing. I mean, we're talking about individuals who have been living uh, life uh, single, and now they're married, uh, hopefully, uh, and they're, they have a relationship and they have a child. Okay, well, this is a, a deep and profound thing to actually have a life... Uh, shares your DNA for better or for worse, <laughs> and now you are now you have a kid. Okay, and I think that everybody out there, and, and I talk to people all day long, Armin. I say, do you want life to be better for your child or worse for your child? They go better. I go, do you want your child to have more opportunities uh, in their life their lifetime than you have had, or less? And they go more. Do you want them to be more learned and educated than you are. They go, more. And I go, you're right, that's the exactly right thing. But that doesn't happen to kind of like by casting all care to the wind. You have to kind of think about it. And not in a kind of weird way that you can kind of plan the future the future. You know, as we all know, uh, certainly in my life, my future has been uh, very different than what I ever thought it would be, put it that way. Um, but that being said, you can do some, there are some things that you can do. And I think one of the, the best things you can do is you need to lay those foundations. And I, I talk about, you know, um, <clears throat> the fact that, you know, I talk about the touchstones of a family, okay, and in, in that chapter, and i the, they i 'll tell you four of them what the four cornerstones, if you will, or what do we believe? what kind of parents are we going to be? what community do we belong to, and the health care of your child? I think those are very four very uh, important uh, foundations, if you will, of a healthy uh, a healthy uh, family and uh, what do you believe I mean I think that you know, I, I happen to be a, a Christian, I have, happen to believe that there's a God in heaven who loves me and loves my children, and I tell them that. And you may not believe that you, you, if you don't, if you're an atheist or you don't have a, 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 that kind of sense of, of, of religious faith, uh, I think that's, that's yours to deal with, but I think you need to share with them yeah. what you believe, and there's nothing wrong with, you know, right. even if you don't believe in God, you believe in something else, okay? you want your children um you want your you want to share your faith with your children yeah. I, I happen to yeah i think God that's, that's important i have done that very much so that's kind of cornerstone number one you start with that um number two uh i talked about the kind of parenting you're going to be their parents need to be mindful of how they how they parent and we, we talk about helicopter parenting. These are parents who are micromanaging their children. They hover over them, hence the word helicoptering. And they try to engage their children in every aspect of their life. I don't recommend that. I think that's very del- uh, deleterious in the, long r- in the long run. You know, kids have to have a little bit of freedom, and they don't have to have every second of their life scheduled and i see this a lot in in my practice a lot in la in general this is kind of a way people do things with their children a little bit too much so i think that you know having a good uh, balance between uh, obviously you're mindful of your child you want you want to know what they're doing but you don't have to hover over them all the time mm-hmm. that's for sure um
1: you know, Bob, I, I wanna make sure that we get to some other things. So I think that I'm gonna leave the the, uh, the remaining two pillars to okay. <laughs> two readers to to pick up the book and, and figure out what those are. But I, yeah, I do want to ask
2: up the book, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, yes. that's,
1: that's, <laughs> yeah, I mean sure there's certainly the plenty yes. plenty of stuff in here. Uh, absolutely. Let's move on. I think you know, one no one problem. of the things that, that I do besides radio is I, I teach classes for expectant fathers and and I tell them at some point in the class that if I could give them a gift and they already get one of my books. That's enough gifts for them, but um, but I you know the, the the gift would be that they would allow themselves time to just watch the baby, just look at the amazing things that they're doing without yeah, having to feel that's good. to focus. I feel, that's very good. I, mean, I, mean,
2: I completely agree with you because you know the this is a human, this is a life, and I think if. One of the things that I, I have to tell you that, I, I wrote this in my book, uh, is that I know the day that I'm going to retire is the day I stop to have that sense of awe. When when my sense of awe goes away, hmm. I know that I'm done.
1: That makes sense, yeah. And and there's a lot to, to be, a lot of awe, I guess, to be. I mean, we just babies just do the most amazing things, and to see how they learn and see how they... They acquire one piece of knowledge and then they use that to build something else. It's, it's amazing. And if and if you are not able to do that, if you're worried about your what's the the email that just came in, or you're worried about a project that you have to do at work or whatever, you're not going to experience the the joy of yes. of being a new parent. And that's, that's right. that that kind of brings me to to another one of the secrets, which I, I really appreciate as somebody who focuses on dads a lot in my writing. Moms and dads are equally important when raising a baby. That is a message that is so needed, and I've I've been writing about it for 20 years, and it still hasn't sunk in with a lot of people, that that dads, okay, they don't have the pregnancy, they don't have the physical connection, but they are just as important, and babies need them in their lives. Talk about that. Yes,
2: yes they do. Well, I mean, this is kind of... Obvious, I think. If you stand back and look, I mean, uh, first of all, um, um, I have, I do have many moms in my practice who are single moms, and and they, God bless them, they do, they do a, a good job, and and they love their children. But the the goodness and the and the wonder of having a mom and a dad, you know, two people handling this little bundle, it makes life more doable. Okay, and and dads, really. You know, listen. In the early stages, they're they're supporting mom. They're making sure mom is getting enough rest. They're getting food and getting you know a little bit of, of a break from time to time. Uh, that's obviously a very big part of being being a dad, being a loving husband, really. But a dad to a you know a young baby, listen, straight out you can bond with that baby too. And it turns out that the more you engage your child, I mean, men have hormones. Yes, we have the big T, we have testosterone flowing through our brain, you know, through our brains, our body and our brains, um, you know, a lot, but there are other hormones out there that can be elicited, namely things like oxytocin, which you kind of like, you think about that hormone as being, you know, completely feminine. Well, it's actually not. Men can, men make oxytocin as well, and when they spend time with their children, actually, they... That the levels of oxytocin actually go up, and you know this, um, Armin. You, you're well aware of that. And that, and you, we men bond to their children too, and it's critical we bond with our children because, in the big p- picture of life, children who have fathers involved in their life simply do better in life. And I, and that yeah, can be that's absolutely 20, true. Plenty. You can, you know, the data better than I do, probably, Armin.
1: No, I'm, but you'll go right ahead.
2: No, you. I mean, you know that. You know <laughs> these kids. They have, uh, you know, dads. You know, by just being there and being, you know, and not being there, you know, as a mute, uh, you know, piece of wood in uh, at the dinner table, but engaging your kids. What are you doing? What you know? What's happening in your life? How did school go today? I'm talking about that being that kind of being there. These kids who have you know come from these families have less. Uh, delinquency they do better academically they're actually a little bit higher iq which is kind of Mm -hmm. weird but you kind of go how does that work well it does work Uh, and they're more empathetic
1: which is an interesting thing
2: with drugs with sex with vaping with tobacco i mean all the vices that we see proliferating kind of around us the children who have you know simply have a mom and a dad who are engaging them they do better in particular with dads though because dad's yeah. Uh, they do. Uh, they have a. They they pr- they give to the children a different dynamic, uh, especially with the girls. I'm telling you, you know, you need uh, a good strong dad to raise healthy girls.
1: Robert Hamilton is the author of Seven Secrets of the Newborn, Secrets and Happy Surprises of the First Year. Bob, thanks so much for joining us. It's great to have you. And and pick up the
0: book is a lot
2: of great, really great, great stuff. Very, very very kind to have me on. I appreciate it. All right.